Well, we're going to be continuing in our study through the book of Ephesians. And uh, last Sunday, we wrapped up the spiritual blessing section of chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Um, how many of you were with us through most of that? Just put your hand up and, and let me know, were you blessed through God's word I mean, is it, isn't it just amazing what he revealed to us through that awesome text? I, I just, that passage, that chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, has just quickly become like one of my all-time favorite passages in all of Scripture. And, uh, and so I was just richly blessed through that time that we had and through the time I had with the Lord in preparation and then being with you and then getting just great feedback on how God is at work and how he's affirming um, his love for us and for you. It's just great. So this morning, we're going to look, begin to look at the rest of chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. Uh, this passage contains Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, and uh, it's, it's just an interesting section. It's like he talks about all these spiritual blessings, then he kind of talks about his prayer for the Ephesians, and so we're going to begin to sort of break that down. It's probably going to take multiple weeks to get through it because it's, it's pretty intricate, but... I'd like to uh, just maybe lift up our time once more to the Lord in prayer uh, before we actually get started on this new uh, journey through the rest of the chapter. Father, thank you again for your word, and uh, thank you for just the, um, the miracle of healing in these things that you've done over in Oakland with our beloved family. We just thank you so much for what you've done there, and we want you to receive all the praise and glory, and, and that's exactly the attitude of Aaron and Trish, and it has been even when things were looking very dismal. And so may we learn from their example uh, in how they've remained steadfast in prayer and in glorifying you. I thank you for that family again. And I thank you for this time and, and for the rest of this family that's here to just to learn from you, to um, come to know you in a greater way, to hear from your truth and to be impacted by it, that these folks here desire to be sanctified, to be made more like Christ through the preaching of your word, through singing the word, through the means of grace that you've prescribed for us. And so we ask for the Holy Spirit to come in power. Um, we need that. And I know I need that in my life every moment. And so, Lord, please send the Holy Spirit to come in power to minister to our hearts today. And may you be glorified and honored and praised here in this place, that there would be no attention brought on me or on any person, any human, that it would all go to you, Christ. And that, you know, it truly is all about Jesus. And we want you to be glorified here today, Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So may that be so. May we give you our attention and our time right now as we listen and learn. And we love you when we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read it out. I'll read it out loud. You can follow along there. Uh, 15 and 16, as I said, for this reason, Paul says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That is our focus text for this morning. We're going to look at I'd say four things from verses 15 to 16. Maybe those will be our points, if you will. Uh, let's start with number one, the very first thing we see for this reason, he says. And, and these things, these points uh, will build. You know, it's like the first one's pretty simple. The next one's a little bit more, there'll be a little bit more commentary and then so on. And they just sort of increase as we get into the verse. But for this reason, what we see here is Paul 
he was setting the stage for what he was about to write in the following lines. Uh, he had a reason for writing the next lines, and he wanted the Ephesians to know that. It's like, for this reason, you know, I'm going to tell you what I'm about to tell you, or for this reason that I'm about to tell you about is why I've written you, and, and this is why I'm explaining what's happened here or what I'm doing. So that's, that's all this is, is an introduction. It's just, for this reason, here's why I've written you what I've written to you. So know that. That's what he means there. It's kind of a transition out of the blessing text, and then here's what I'm writing to you, and here's why is what he's saying. The second thing we notice, for this reason, because I have heard of for this reason, because I have heard of. Paul's reason for writing was tied to what he had heard. That's pretty obvious from the text. It's as if he said, Ephesians, I heard something about you, and that's why I wrote this section. That's why I wrote the following lines. And obviously, he was led by the Holy Spirit, and so we know that the Spirit is the true author of Scripture, but he he heard something about these people, and that's why he goes into this next section. He wants to tell them about what he heard and how he's responded. Paul was the founder of the church at Ephesus. He had labored long in that city. And many of us that have been here for a while read about that through Acts, and we, we've studied that and how he planted the church and how he was there for many years and doing ministry and just sort of multiplying and preaching the gospel and these things. So he, you know, he was the founder. He had labored long in the city, but he had also, at this point, been away for about five years, maybe five, four to six years, they estimate. So he'd been away for quite a while, five, six years. That's a long time. I think I've been away from my old home church for about four years now, Big Valley. And so a lot of stuff happens in that time, right? So he'd been away for a while. By the time he writes this, he'd been away for about five years. He left Ephesus to minister to the churches he had planted in other regions and to plant new churches, right? He was a church planter. He was a missionary. He stayed in some places for a couple of years, two or three years at a time. Not often he did at Ephesus, but for the most part, he was always on the move. He's got missions, journeys that he did, three of them, right, we see in the Scripture. And actually, I think there's probably more like five. But he was always on the move, and so he, had, he was in Ephesus for a number of years, and he had left to minister to the other churches that he had planted to go down and, and found elder boards or to train elders to do these various things, to plant new churches, whatever. After he had left, he went to Jerusalem, and of course, we read in Acts, again, if you were with us, and you could read it yourself, um, that he, you know, when he went to Jerusalem, Jerusalem to preach the gospel, he was arrested, he was incarcerated, he was placed in custody. And then from Jerusalem, he was transferred to Caesarea, and then from Caesarea to Rome, where he was put on house arrest until he was to face trial, or until his trial. It was during the house arrest in Rome that he had written this letter. We've covered all of that in the introduction. Um, and what, what I want you to see here is that Paul is away. Uh, he did not have direct access and that's why he's writing this letter. He didn't have direct access. He didn't have personal access to the church at Ephesus. He'd been there for a while. He left. He was away for five years. He was incarcerated. He, he could not travel back to Ephesus and, and meet with the leaders and with the church and be a blessing to them. All of this was done via remote. And we would say that he had to rely on messengers at this point. And this is why he wrote, because I have heard of not because I have seen with my own eyes, I've seen what you've been doing or what's going on, and now I'm responding to that or whatever. He, he, this is all done via remote. He's quite a ways away from Ephesus at this point. Maybe, I don't know, a thousand miles or so, maybe less, maybe more. Somebody gave Paul a report 
about the Ephesians and what was going on in the church. And that's, again, why he heard about what was going on there and why he wrote all of this. And, and we don't know who delivered the message. We don't know if somebody was with Paul and, and left his house arrest and traveled all the way to Ephesus and got a report and traveled back. We don't know if there was somebody in Ephesus that had a report and then brought it back. We don't know how, the logistics of it, but we know that somehow, even though he's very far away and he's in jail, basically, he's hearing reports about the churches that are going on where he planted churches in these various regions, and this one happens to be with Ephesus. He had heard how the church was basically continuing in the faith, how it was pressing on, and even how it was growing. And what we see here in the very first couple, in well, the very first sentence, basically what we see here is that he was writing in response to that report. So that's what he's doing. And he wanted, essentially, as we'll notice in his writing here, he wanted the Ephesians to know how he felt about what was going on there in Ephesus. And about, you know, and he also wanted to to share with them how he was responding to the news. You know, he got this report, and it's like, I'm writing to you to let you know that I'm aware of what's going on. And then he also includes his own response to what's going on there. And we, we see all of that in these two verses. So that's sort of how it's set up here. Now, number three, for this reason, I'll just kind of keep building the verse. For this reason, because I have heard of, right, your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. That's the next line. Paul had heard about the Ephesians' faith in the Lord Jesus and their love toward all the saints. Faith in the Lord Jesus and love toward all the saints are literally two things that will characterize the life of every true believer. Like he's given a report back to them about what he heard about them, but he's also writing about two very, very important doctrines or two very important characteristics that should mark the life of every true believer, quite literally. And so, and, and I think that Paul was being, yeah, even though he's writing back to these people and saying, hey, this is what I've heard, here's what's going down, I want you to know that I'm tracking with you, I'm celebrating with you, but it's, it's like there's a very practical application in this text too, even though it's just a recording of what he's heard. But it's very practical. Paul was probably one of the most practical authors of Scripture there is. I mean, look at the, his epistles. He's always giving instruction and stuff. And so there is some instruction here in a way. It's a very, there's a very practical application here. So these are two things, faith in the Lord Jesus and love toward all the saints. These are two things that will characterize the life of a true believer. And obviously they were characterized there in that church. But Paul is not pointing to two separate things in the verse. He's not pointing to two separate things. Like, I've heard about this, and then also, this is, other things good, I've heard about this. So we don't want to think of faith in the Lord Jesus and love toward all the saints as two separate things, even though we could, but not in this context. That's not what he's intending to say here. He's not pointing to two separate things. He does not mean faith and love, right? What he means is faith that produces love. That's what he's talking about here. I've heard about your faith, which is producing love. That would be the right way to interpret what he's written here. Okay, so it's not like two separate doctrines or two separate characteristics. It's one that produces the other. That's what he intends here. Or as Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, faith which produces action. Faith that produces action. 
So, we should, in light of that, view this verse as a sort of test. We should use it as a sort of test. We should look at it through the lens of, okay, there's a test here that we should look at. In 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul exhorted the church, right, the Corinthians, to test themselves to see if they were in the faith. He did that. He exhorted the church. You need to test to see if you were in the faith. And obviously that was written to a particular people at a particular time in a particular context, but it also applies to us. Now, we can do that here. We can literally do that here, and that's where I want to go with this message. We can do that here by comparing the faith of the Ephesians with our faith. We can look at their faith and what it exampled and what it looked like, and we can juxtapose that or compare that with our own to test ourselves. Now, last Sunday, we talked about the divine characteristics of faith, right? How many of you were with us last week and you heard about the divine characteristics of faith, right? We talked about how faith is divine in origin, how it is a divine gift, and how it comes through the divine word, and how it is implanted through the divine power and work and ministry of the Holy Spirit, right? These are things that we focused on. These are things that we heard last week, very important things. Now, this morning, I want to talk about what characterized the Ephesians' faith. And I want us to test ourselves by comparing their faith with ours so that we can learn, know, understand if our faith is true. If we have saving faith or true saving faith, however you want to put that. So what type, based on the description here that Paul gives us, and I know maybe some of you, you're a little more scholarly and all that, and you're looking at it and you're saying, all he said is faith in the Lord Jesus. There's really no description here. He's not really talking about a whole lot. Hold on a second, scholarly types. There's a ton of information just in this little verse here. There is. And so I'm going to draw out three characteristics from the text about their faith, okay? So you might want to be ready to write these things down. It's just coming right from, I'm not going all over the place to get verses and to try to build a case from other passages, which is perfectly fine. It's all here. A, the first thing we notice is that the Ephesians had saving faith. Their faith was a saving faith. Their faith was a saving faith. And just so everyone knows, we're in Ephesians 1, uh, 15 through 16. I want you guys to know where we're at. Praise God for you guys coming in. Welcome. Uh, Ephesians 1, 15 and 16 is where we're at. Okay, so the Ephesians had saving faith. First thing we notice. Faith is um, pistis in Greek, which means to trust. Faith in the Lord Jesus. It's a trust It's a trust is what we're seeing here. That's what we're talking about. In the New Testament, it is used in reference to believing, literally. In the New Testament, it's used as a reference to believing the good news about Jesus Christ and becoming a follower of his, to be a believer, if you will, to be a Christian. Pistis is associated, that Greek phrase, it's associated with belief directly in or trust in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ as Savior. So this passage denotes that. This verse denotes that. That phrase, faith, it denotes that. That's what it means. It is a specific sort of faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, right? And what is Paul doing here in the text? He's acknowledging that the Ephesians had this kind of faith. Your faith, he says. I have heard of your faith. Pistis in Greek, your faith, 
directed towards Jesus Christ, a trust in him. They had saving faith. I like how MLJ, Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, describes faith in the text or from this text. He says, to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ means that we see everything in him, that he is our all and all and in all. If a man tells me he has faith in the Lord Jesus, he tells me that he has no faith in himself, that he has come to see that all his righteousness is but refuse, filthy rags, useless, worthless. He has no confidence in the flesh, no confidence in himself. He relies entirely and utterly on the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on his behalf. To have faith in the Lord Jesus means that you trust him utterly, entirely, and absolutely. It means that you believe that he came into this world to save you and that it is, it is he himself who saves you. So that's his commentary on what faith here means. That's a pretty basic, generic sort of description, the reliance on Christ, the forsaking of all others and your own you know, ability if you believed you had such a thing to save yourself. It's relying completely on Christ. And I think that his explanation really does describe the Ephesians' faith in a nutshell. So if that's what faith is, it's relying completely on Jesus Christ as Savior, on his person and work, believing that he literally came to earth to die on a cross in your place to bear your sin, to make an atonement for you, to cleanse you of all unrighteousness, to prepare you for relationship with God. That's what atonement means, to clear you and to make you ready for relationship, to bring you into relationship. I mean, let's test ourselves. If that's what faith here means, does MLJ's or my description right here, does that describe your faith? Is that what your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ looks like? Is that what you're doing? Are you trusting in him in this way that it is described, as the Ephesians were doing? That you've forsaken all others. Like, I can't save myself. Buddha can't save me. Allah can't save me. Uh, My wife can't save me, even though she acts like she can at times, right? I can't be saved. I wasn't referencing my wife. It's you I was referencing, if you feel that way. My wife knows she can't save me. She makes that clear all the time. And she most certainly makes it clear much more that I can't save myself, right? She tells me at times, I don't know what you're trying to do here. Yeah, I'm being a fool. But does this description, does this definition describe your faith? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior and Him alone? That you're not trying to work your way into something with God, that you're not trying to earn his favor and salvation, that you're not trusting or relying in something else, or maybe that you're just flat out rejecting him and you're not trying to do anything and you just, you maybe don't have faith at all. I mean, there could be someone in this room who feels that way, that it, that's their position. Test yourselves. Does this describe your faith? Are you trusted in Christ alone? Is Christ the center? Do you believe that your efforts are but filthy rags, a stench, futile? Do you believe that you are saved by what Christ did alone? Do you believe that Christ came to save you? This is huge. And, 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 and the basic Christian says, of course. And, and, and 86% of our nation says it's basically Christian, and it would say, no way to this. Absolutely not. I'm a good person. This is huge. I mean, this is, this is, this is their faith. This is the faith that they showed. This is their example. 
And this is the faith that we must have. It is the only saving faith. It's to let go of everything else and to run full speed to Jesus because he's the only rescuer. You realize that. This is what the Ephesians did. B, the Ephesians had accurate faith. The Ephesians had accurate faith. Notice how the verse says the Lord Jesus. Notice how it says the Lord Jesus. He didn't just say faith in Jesus Christ. He says faith in the Lord Jesus, right? That's how Paul describes Jesus there. The Lord, it's there. Jesus is the Savior, no doubt, right? Our first point covers that. Our second point covers the fact that he is also Lord. He is the Lord. He is both Savior and Lord. Saving faith is the belief in Jesus as Savior and Lord. It's both. Now, there's much, much confusion, too much confusion about this today in our culture or even in the church. Just massive, communi- just massive confusion about this subject One side, you know, on one side people say, if you say that we must believe in Jesus as Lord, you are adding works to our salvation and diminishing grace. You are preaching lordship salvation, which is not the gospel. People say this. I've gotten debates with people that say these sorts of things. Like as if we were to refer to Jesus as Lord. Hold on a second, pal. He's the Savior. Don't start getting that lordship thing in there. You you can believe in him as savior alone and be saved. You don't have to believe that he's lord. You don't have to do these kinds of things. People say this stuff all the time. There's people out there that are preaching Jesus from pulpits right at this very moment throughout our country and probably throughout the world. Maybe there's a time zone difference. But for the most part, they're preaching these sorts of things. And I, I can't get my mind around it. On the other side, people say Jesus is Lord, but only in regards to his deity, not in regards to his sovereignty. This is something that people preach too, even some ministers in town. And MacArthur wrote this in response to the idea of that, you know, in terms of his deity, he's, he's Lord, but not in terms of his, you know, sovereignty, he's not Lord. He's not the sovereign Lord over all things. He's just, the, you know, the deity thing. He says this, such a separation is artificial. Because deity implies sovereignty, right? I just don't understand where people come up with these ideas. It's like they're, they're running logically for a while, then they take a left turn, they go down the illogical hill and crash. They do this. I don't get it. I can't figure out how this stuff works. I mean, if he's deity, then he's got sovereignty. I mean, that's just the way it works, right? Apparently not for some. Here is a biblical fact, all right? The New Testament does not separate Jesus as Savior from Jesus as Lord. He is both. And the Ephesians believed, they believed in Jesus as Savior and as Lord. They had it down. Their faith was accurate, and Paul acknowledged that here, that they had the right type of faith. Yes, trusting in Jesus, believing in Jesus as Savior, but also acknowledging, accepting, believing, affirming that he is also the Lord of all creation, that he is the sovereign Lord. If we believe in Jesus as Savior and not Lord, our faith is inaccurate. There's a problem with it. If we believe in Jesus as Lord and not Savior, which some can do too, they can go all the way over on the other side, the pendulum flies, and it bangs the side of Lordship. If you do that, your faith is not accurate. It's not. 
Accurate faith, true saving faith, the right belief according to Scripture is that Jesus is Savior and Lord. He is both. Now keep in mind that no person receives Jesus Christ with a full understanding of all he is or all he requires as Lord of those he saves, right? Nobody just gets saved and all of a sudden they've got all this doctrine down. They've got all, you know, I, I tell you, anyone who would tell you, I understand Jesus perfectly as all this, two minutes after they get saved, run! They don't, believe me. I mean, I've been saved for 14, 15 years now. I'm still trying to figure it out. How many of you have been saved in here longer than me? And you're, you know, you, you get it. He's Savior and Lord. But, you know, you, you would not even pretend to think or believe or tell others, I've got him down. You know, I've got Jesus down completely. Amen, right? You just got to keep in mind that when Christ saves a person, they don't come into it with a full, you know, they don't come into it, you know, as Phil Baker on Tuesday and on Wednesday, it's Charles Haddon, Phil Baker, Spurgeon. And even he didn't have it all down, and he would never pretend to have had it all down. But I tell you, his knowledge was amazing. The majority of people, if not all people, come to Christ, right? He saves them. They come into this relationship with very little understanding of his sovereign deity and what it means to submit to him as Lord. They do. This is a, it's a pride. He saves. Salvation is not just, okay, that's it. I'm Lord, Savior. It's done. It's over. I'll see you in heaven. It's an ongoing process. Salvation is a progressive, ongoing work. We call it sanctification. That's one of the most important thrusts of true salvation, that we're being made in the likeness of Christ, coming to know who he is more and more in terms of his lordship, deity, all these things. It's an ongoing sort of thing. It's not a once and done kind of thing. It is in terms of your eternal security, but not in your growth. So it's, we need to make sure that we understand that. But we would all admit that when a person gets saved, they know very little of these things. And yet, and yet... The person who possesses saving faith will desire to submit to him as Lord, regardless of their limited understanding. Did you hear me? Now, I, I get it. I think it has to do with more or less our flesh and our ability to comprehend in these things. But I'm going to tell you right now, I'll say this as clearly as I can. The person who is truly saved will desire. They're not going to spend the next 15 years bucking his lordship and denouncing that and teaching other Christians to do that. There's a problem. They're going to be like, they're going to hear a sermon or they're going to read in a text about him as Lord and they're inquisitive children now. They've been made new. They're God's children. And they say, that's very interesting. I want to know what that means. They don't go, that's ridiculous. That's apostasy. And yet there are some who claim Christ who do that today. They read it and they look at it. No, no, that's not, that's not what it means. That's not what it means. We have to trust him as Savior alone because if we say, Lord, it adds to a grace and it just screws the whole thing up. No, when a Christian reads a Bible passage or hears an accurate sermon about the lordship of Jesus, he will say, I, I want my life to be under his ruling care. I want to submit to him as Lord. That's the heart of the true believer. And he may not or she may not understand all that that means, but they will have a desire to submit to him because he is their very life. And they don't want to be under the lordship in some way of the demons and the devil and ad governmental administrations or whatever weird idea they might have. They want to be under their kingdom people. Kingdom itself implies, infers lordship, king. And so that's what they want. They're kingdom people. He, he's my lord. 
And, and they're not going to pretend to know all that that means, but I'm going to tell you, when the Holy Spirit comes and illuminates, regenerates, saves a person, faith and repentance is implanted in this person. The Holy Spirit himself takes up residency, and he brings these truths with him, and he affirms them, and he changes us through them in these things. The believer never says to himself, the lordship is stupid and ridiculous and apostasy. No, 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 the believer doesn't say that. The unbeliever, the pagan, says that. That's, that's, a, that's a fact. It is not the attitude of the Holy Spirit who is supposed to be in the person. That is the attitude of an unbeliever. MacArthur again says, Jesus is both Savior and Lord, or he is neither. So you can't say, I got the Savior, but the Lord thing, no. Or I got the Lord, but no Savior, no, 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 no. You, you, You can't, as he says, he says, you cannot divide his nature in two. Right? It's like saying, I believe in Phil, but I don't believe in the fact that he's a male. Of course, in this day and age, you can see why people get confused about these things. But that's a reality, is it not? And to be honest with you, no matter what process I would go through to become a female, I still have male genes, I've got male bone structure, it doesn't matter, I'm always going to be a male. So you, you wouldn't say, well, you know, like Phil, is, he's male and he's Phil. I can't cease to be male. I could probably change my name. Cease to be Phil. I could be Felipe or something like that. <laughs> MacArthur says, when we, that was stupid, when we receive him, we receive him wholly as he is. We're accepting, right? When we enter into this relationship with Jesus Christ, we accept Him as Savior and Lord. And this is why doctrine matters in the church. Because in some churches, you never have Lord mentioned, and He's just Savior, or He's just a carpenter, or He's just Jewish, or whatever. I don't know what people are going with today. And and we, we claim to enter into relationship with Him, and yet we don't really understand who He is. We must know who He is. Or it just diminishes salvation and grace and, and, his, and who he is. It's a terrible, terrible thing. So the Ephesians, it's very clear from the text. They believed, they were trusting, right? Pistes, they were trusting, Greek. They were trusting in the Lord, Savior, and Lord Jesus Christ. He was how they had it down. And that is their example, right? That is the example of their faith. It's saving faith, believing in Jesus as Savior and as Lord. Now, the question for us is how, how do we respond to scriptures and sermons about his lordship? <laughs> how do we respond to the concept of lordship, Jesus as Lord? That's the test for us, you know? Do we affirm Jesus as Savior and Lord, or do we lean to one or the other? Let me ask you this. You, you claim to be following Jesus, right? Do you desire to submit to Jesus, right? You believe in Jesus. He's your Savior. But do you de- desire to submit to him as Lord, to bring your life under his lordship, to hand him all and to say it's all yours, it's all to your glory? I'm not relying on anything else. I don't, I don't bow to others. I bow to you alone in terms of salvation and lordship and these things. Is that your heart? Is that your attitude? So you've got to test yourself here. 
It can't be Savior without Lord or Lord without Savior. And again, what we see here is that they had, they had this down, the Ephesians had it, and Paul makes it known to them, hey, I see how you believe. I see what you're doing here. You believe in Him as Savior and Lord. Right on. That's where it should be, right? See, the Ephesians had living faith. The Ephesians had living faith. A living faith, if you will. This is made clear through Paul's statement, and your love toward all the saints. There it is. The Ephesians had faith in the Lord Jesus, and that faith produced love in their hearts, which was shown through love for the brethren. Love actually proves that our faith is alive, literally. If we claim to have true saving faith, but do not have love in our hearts, our faith is fake, it's false. We don't even know God because God is love, right? 1 John 4, 8. There's a starting point. If we don't have love in our hearts, love for God, love for others, we don't even know God because he himself is the full, perfected embodiment of love. How can we say we know God and are in relationship with him through Christ if we have not love? He is love. There's the logic of what John is saying in 1 John 4, 8. They had a living faith. They had a loving, if you will. It was a loving faith. There was love there accompanied. Love accompanied their faith. Notice how Paul wrote also love toward. Toward. See that? Toward all the saints, not love for all the saints. And I have no doubt that they had love for all the saints, but here Paul describes it as love toward all the saints. There is a difference between toward and for. Toward means to show. (laughs) It means to give. It means to display. It means to example. It's to put something towards something else. To bring it. To give it. It implies action, right? Toward. Action. The Ephesians had faith which produced love, which produced action. What type of action? We don't know. Paul didn't say here, and I went all the way through Ephesians and skimmed the whole letter again, and I couldn't find like active, you know, types of love being expressed. It just, he doesn't put it here. And I'll admit, this is conjecture, but I think they followed in the, the footsteps of the early believers at Jerusalem, who believed in the Lord Jesus and what? Sold their possessions and belongings and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. That's sort of a, that's a, that's a, um, Acts 2, 42 to 47. That's sort of a default mode for the early Christians. This is how they loved. They took care of each other. I think that's probably what was going on, but I, I admit that it's, it's conjecture, but I think that's probably what was happening. When God gives a man faith, right, because it's a divine gift that's given through the Word and applied through the Holy Spirit, we learned all that last week. When God gives a man faith, He gives him a new nature and a propensity for love 
and a desire to express that love through action. Whether that action be through obedience, repentance, worship, charity, service, or whatever. This is why the Pentecost converts immediately stepped forward to be baptized right after being saved. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with the love of God. And when they heard Peter say, here is the first thing you need to do, be baptized, they replied, where's the water? Not, well, I'll probably do that in about 15 years. Faith produces love. Love produces action. Do you see the picture here in the text of what True saving faith is. Faith, love, action. That's the title of this sermon. Many today believe that you can pray a special prayer to Jesus and be saved and then go back to business as usual. Just turn right around and go back to... You turn around, right? There's a repentance, but there's no repentance because they turn right back to what they were five minutes before they prayed the prayer. There is no love of God or for others in the right sense. There is no action. The faith isn't shown through action, through love. This is not saving faith. Saving faith will be accompanied by love and action. Saving faith always produces love and love always produces action. Faith, love, and action go hand in hand. Faith, love, and action are marks of a true believer. If we claim to have saving faith but do not have love in our hearts, love toward our brothers and sisters in Christ, we do not have true saving faith. Period. Faith that is devoid of these things is, as James said, and we had it read earlier, dead. It's dead. He just says it so boldly, and people wrestle with that. They try to say, look, he's talking about, you know, uh, works and faith, and, and works produces faith, and vice versa, and people get all crazy and bent out of shape on this. All he's saying is that, let me show you what true saving faith looks like. It looks like me loving God, loving others, and serving. It looks like me passing by a brother or sister in need and not saying, hey, I can't help you with your meal. I know you're starving to death, but be blessed. That's the example he gives after the part that Gina read. See, truth-saving faith will be accompanied by love and by action, a desire to help someone, to love someone. We read that in James 2. One of the top signs of truth-saving faith is love for the brethren. You hear me? That is one of the greatest marks. How do I know that? Because that's exactly what your verse says. Faith in the Lord Jesus, love toward all the saints. I don't make this stuff up. I I wish I did because then I could just dismiss it because I think it's easier for me as a person just to love God and to kind of do my thing. And then when I read these texts, I realize there's a burden here. Wait a minute, Phil, if your faith is true, if it's accurate, you will love other believers. Firstly, in an unbelieving world. Secondly, one of the top signs of true saving faith is love for the brethren. John 13, 34 to 35 makes this lucidly clear, but I'm going to read that at the benediction at the end. So, you'll hear it soon enough.
Notice also the phrase in the text, all the saints. Christian love is indiscriminate. It does not pick and choose which believers it will love. It has no favorites. It is not partial. And I'll be a little more transparent here with you. This is very convicting for me because I tend to want to love or to focus my love on brothers and sisters who do not cause me harm, pain, grief, or frustration. Just being honest. Man, I love, I love that, that guy in the Lord and then he causes me a bunch of trouble and boy, that's, I'm not saying the same thing in my heart about him. I'm saying, what an idiot. Why did he do that? Why would he do that to me? That's not love. And then I try to bend it. Well, it is a type of love. It's constructive criticism. Calling him a butthead is not constructive criticism. Let's just get that straight. And yes, sometimes I say things worse than that. I need to learn to stand in the mirror when I'm going to make those kinds of judgments. That way I can smile at the ultimate butthead. Hi! Right? Well, I can't believe what that guy did. What about you? Hey, what do you mean? I'm just putting gel in my hair. It doesn't have anything to do with me. I'll admit it is easier for me to love those who agree with me and who do what I think. You know, I'm always about, uh, I I love those ones who agree with me, like even on theology and these things, right? And, And they do what I think they should do, right? And those who don't do those things, boy, they're tough to love, aren't they? You know, it's not wrong to think of your spouse as the brethren, even though brethren, I think, connotes, has a connotation of maybe a male. I don't know. Maybe not. You're, if you have a believing spouse, she is part of the all here. And how difficult is it for you at times to love your spouse? They just do things and you're like, why, Lord? You know she's saying the same thing or he's saying the same thing about you in the other room. Why, Lord? Would we all be willing to admit that we wrestle with this nasty problem of loving with a fervent kind of love those who don't create too much trouble for us? How many of you would be willing to admit that? Some are bold enough to put their own hands up. Yeah. <laughs> I was expecting this, but, you know, that didn't happen. Oh, I can't let people know in here. Mm-mm. You've got the pastor who speaks every week who's either humble enough, I don't know if it's that, or stupid enough to admit these things before you. I'm supposed to set an example for you, and I blow it. It's easier for me to love certain saints. You struggle with this? Be honest. Guess what? This verse obliterates that idea. It destroys all prejudice. It annihilates all partiality. It absolutely devastates all preference. It's all the saints. 
There's no room in there for those who treat us well or badly or those who dress very well or those, right? James talks about that too. Those whom we just prefer over others. It just completely nukes this whole idea. It affirms, James 2, 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. It affirms Romans 2, 1, God shows no favoritism. Scripture authenticates Scripture. This is God's heart for us. It's God's heart for me. To love and just to love, not to condition it. Now listen to this other section by Martin Lloyd-Jones and it's in his commentary. It's really good. It describes how we should view all believers, I think, to a degree. He says, a good story is told in connection with Philip Henry, the father of Matthew Henry, the Bible commentator. He and a certain young lady had fallen in love with each other. She belonged to a higher circle of society than he did. But the young lady became a Christian, and therefore social standing no longer counted with her or constituted any kind of obstacle to their marriage. Her parents, however, were not pleased and argued with her. They said, this Philip Henry, where did he come from? To which she gave the immortal reply, I don't know where he has come from, but I know where he's going. We love the saints because we know where they are going. They and we are marching toward, together toward Zion. We believe, we belong actually, we belong to the same father, to the same household, to the same family. We are going to the same home and we know it. Some of us are very difficult and very trying and very unworthy, but thank God, because we are God's children, we are traveling together towards our heavenly home, and we know that the day will come when all our faults and blemishes and spots and wrinkles will disappear, and we shall be glorified and perfected together, enjoying the same glorious eternity. Amen. That's the perspective. Boy, they caused me trouble. Well, I'll see him in heaven. I don't know if that's the right way to look at it, but it's, it's this default attitude of, man, we're, we're, yes, regardless of what we do at times and the foolishness that we engage in, and we should all be willing to admit to our own foolishness, that we are all, as Christians, going to be made like Christ and going to be glorified and going to spend an eternity in a glorious heaven with him. That's where we all end up together. And I think that when we understand that and grasp that, we can begin to let go of some of these other insecurities or problems or judgments or whatever it is towards others, when, even though we know they mess up. I love that explanation. We are all marching together to Zion. That's great. We belong to the same father, to the same household, to the same family. We are going to the same home, and we know it. The idea there is, why do we get hung up on these little inconsistencies and, and, and screw-ups and mess-ups when that's not, that's not the ultimate goal of what God is doing in the bigger picture? And we could just take grace and just inject it into those moments. Grace upon grace upon grace. Where sin abounds, grace abounded all the more. I don't know about you, but the more I get to know Scripture, the truth, the more I get to know God, the more I get to know about myself. 
And the more I come to realize how much grace I need, I'm becoming more and more convinced that the person in this world who needs more of God's grace than anyone else isn't President Obama. It's Phil Baker. The Ephesians had living faith. Their faith was alive. It produced love. It produced action. Action what? Love toward all the saints. No discrimination. Loving Christians. Loving Christians. Test yourselves. Is your faith alive? Do you have love in your hearts? I'd say first love for God. And I would say adamantly love for all the saints. You just, you don't have saving faith. You have saving faith if you struggle with love for others at times because we have this thing called flesh. But to be devoid of that period and just not, to not have love, to be filled with bitterness and anger toward others, especially the brethren. I get it, man. Christians are the only soldiers on the battlefield who shoot their wounded. I got him. Oh, never mind. I just capped him. You know, I mean, that's what we do. We are terrible at reconciliation. We are terrible at showing grace and mercy to other believers. Boy, I tell you, we can be some of the greatest evangelists, but when our brothers and sisters are in trouble or do things, boy, we're just brute. We brutalize them. And all that Paul is saying here is that it should be love, especially for them. Especially. The difficult ones, the hard ones, the ones who don't cause a whole lot of trouble, right? Don't gravitate. Don't gravitate toward either one. In fact, if we look at the example of Jesus, who did he seem to hang out with? And those who were despised and rejected and, you know, ostracized. I mean, if there was going to be a leaning at all, more love should be exerted and poured out on those who have a hard time. Because only love is going to break those strongholds, those behaviors, those attitudes. It's only the love of God that's going to break those things and melt those things and actually change a person. We just, Christians shouldn't have self-defense in their vocabulary. And I am a, I tell you, man, I become Mike Tyson when somebody hurts me. <sighs> you know? And yet again, one more example of how I fall so Grand Canyon short of the truth. So, let's summarize. Ephesians had saving faith. They believed in Jesus as Savior. Ephesians had accurate faith. They believed in Jesus as Lord. The Ephesians had living faith. They had love in their hearts. And that love was expressed toward all the saints. This is the report Paul received 
which prompted him to write this section and to do what he described in the next line. This is awesome. Number four. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Here it is. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Wow. Paul responded. How did he respond to the news and what they were doing? This living, active, accurate, saving faith. He responded with prayer and praise. Awesome. He was so overjoyed with the news, and boy, did he need a good report, right? Been away for five years, been held in jail and in custody for multiple years, four, four years or so, five years. Actually, not from the exact moment that he left, but maybe about six months after that. So he'd been in jail for about four and a half years, or in custody at least. He needed a good report. He was at a point where, man, this was such an encouragement to him to hear that one of the churches he's planted was pressing on in the faith, believing, affirming the Lord Jesus, believing in him, trusting in him and him alone, and loving all the saints throughout the region. This is what he needed to hear, man. And boy, God blessed him with that report. And look at how he responds. He was so overjoyed with the news of what God was doing in Ephesus that he prayed to the Lord and gave thanks for the church. He had no doubt at this point that the spiritual blessings of verses 3 to 14 belonged to the Ephesians because they had the two marks of saving faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus and love toward all the saints. Paul was elated when he got this report. How do I know these blessings belong to you? Because of your faith in the Lord Jesus and because you have love for all the saints. I can tell that you have true saving faith based on those two facts. These blessings are yours, Ephesians. They are literally yours. They literally belong to you. Why? Because you have true faith. I think he felt a sense of duty, too. He, like he had to tell them about his joy and his happiness for them. He said, in effect, I constantly praise God for you. What elation and joy the Ephesians must have experienced during the reading of this letter from their former shepherd. Wow! It's quite an... An amazing thing to have a shepherd, a pastor, an elder, someone say, you know, man, I am, I am so pleased with the Lord, with how he is at work in your life and the fruit that's being born. And it's just amazing. I mean, that is, it's an encouragement when, a, when an elder or a pastor comes to you and, and praises God for you. This is what he did here in this letter to the Ephesians, for the Ephesians, how they must have felt. They didn't go, well, well, you know, this is how we do it in Ephesus. Yeah, a couple years ago, you did black magic. Shut up. Eh. Right? Some of you still are. This isn't a prideful thing. Don't get prideful because, you know, Paul praised God for you. This is an affirmation to the Ephesian church. Keep doing what you're doing. Later on in Revelation, we see you forgot what you were doing at the beginning, and now I need you to return to it, because at some point they forgot about this stuff. Notice how Paul wrote, I do not cease. What does that denote? Constancy. 
Constant prayer. Like what Paul wrote about in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Pray without what? Ceasing. That is how we are to pray. Without ceasing. Constantly. And guess what? Part of our prayers should be committed and devoted to thanking God for other believers. (laughs) As Paul put it, we should remember them in our prayers. And what do we typically pray for when we pray for other believers? Help them with this, help them with that, this, that, and the other, the marriage, this, that, right? Those are good petitions. Those are good things. But how often do we actually just call out to God and say, I, I, I thank you, Father, for Bruce Filburn and how you're alive and at work in his life and how you're ministering through him to our congregation and these things. Uh, Father, I, I praise you and I thank you for Rhonda and how she loves our children and how she comes down here with her husband and her family. And I, I praise you for Randy and little Randy and all the Randys. Thank you for what they do and how they're blessing our church. That was weird, right? But you know what I'm talking about. There's only two Randys, right? Is the dog named Randy? Praise the Lord. I praise you, Father, for Dennis Tremblay, whom was an amazing influence on my life at Nugent for I don't know how many years. In fact, I'm not sure what would have happened in certain scenarios if he hadn't have been there to give me wisdom. When is the last time you prayed and thanked God for a brother or sister in Christ? In closing, there is one more thing that I want you to notice about our section, and this would be the whole section, verses 15 to 23. You can just look right at your Bible. The whole thing is about Paul's prayer, okay? That's what this section is. 15 through 23 is his prayer. Here is what I want you to notice. Paul began his prayer with thanks. He did. Do we begin our prayer with thanks? Do our prayers feature thanks at all? Thanks for who God is. Thanks for what God has done. Thanks for what God is doing. Thanks for what God will do in the future. Thanks, as Paul put it, for other believers, for all the saints maybe. For maybe that special group of believers at your church, for the believers at your church, for certain family members that are Christians, for certain Christians, for a particular leader. I just feel like this passage is, was totally and absolutely meant, and it was, as an affirmation and encouragement to the Ephesian believers, but for me, it's a total and absolute wrecking ball because it exposes things about me for good reason. And I don't want you to get the wrong idea. I don't walk around going, no, oh, I just hate Christians. No, I wouldn't be a church planter if I did that right? But I struggle with these things. And so this is, it's affirming and it's convicting. We have all been challenged from the text to test our faith, to see if it's real, to see if it's true. And now we have been challenged to test our prayer lives, haven't we? Some of us may feel that this is a lot to deal with and that's okay. I mean, this is just overwhelming because I, I, you know, you might say to yourself, I realize that I fall way short in this area. The, the love issue or, or the prayer issue or even the faith issue or 
the lordship issue. Maybe you have an issue with one of these subjects. I just want you to remember something here, very important, that these tests have not been provided by me, your pastor. A mere man, a struggling sinner saved by grace, that's not who provided these tests. They have been provided by our loving, merciful, and gracious Heavenly Father. He is able to save to the uttermost, it says in Hebrews. If you do not have saving faith, ask Him to give it to you. Ask Him to make you a believer. Ask Him to give you the Holy Spirit so that you can believe in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only is He able to save to the uttermost, He is able to restore us if we're disconnected in any of these areas. If you're a believer and you've been unloving, maybe your heart is filled with anger, hatred, wrath, rage because of something that happened. Maybe a brother or sister in Christ jacked you up and you can't forgive them. Or maybe an unbeliever did that to you. Or maybe your prayer life is self-centered and thankless. Maybe you've been struggling with some other sin, something else. Know this. If we confess our sins to the Father, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. You see, He tests us because He loves us. It might sound weird, but in a way, God keeps a short leash on his children because he knows how quickly they roam and go run off, and the next thing you know, they get picked up by the dog catcher, and then they get euthanized. Who's the euthanizer? The devil. It's like, you know, he tests us because he loves us. And it would be horrible if he just tested us and then we found that we failed and then there was no restoration or way back because the test comes with mercy and grace and restoration and a renewed fellowship with our Father. Amen.